Hey, as, uh, as Pastor Mike mentioned, there is uh, some sort of a sporting match next week, but we are still having church. So I think it doesn't, uh, the, the tee-off or the tip-off or whatever it's called, it's until three. What's it called? The drop, the puck drop, the kickoff, right? Is until three, so we're going to have church now. I'm not a big football fan, as you might have already figured out, but I've seen people watch football. So, if you're one of those people, you may want to come to church in the morning and repent early. <laughs> sort of a pre-repentance program that we have in place here, and you can store that up for the afternoon. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you're going to need one. Uh, raise your hand; we'll get one passed out to you. I think it's even marked to where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at that middle section of verses, verses 9 through 25. As you're turning there, you know, we've uh, started off together this month, of course, reading through the scriptures. And uh, of course, I love to read the Bible, but I'm reminded about one of the things that I love the most about God's word, and that's watching the ways that God deals so uniquely with the unique people that he deals with. You know, we're looking through Genesis and through Exodus, and boy, what a cast of characters that he has to contend with. And he's so amazingly consistent in his character, and yet he has this amazing ability to adjust his approach to account for our own human inconsistencies. And he always does it in a way over and over and over where he still manages to accomplish his higher purpose. And just reading these stories, it really brings comfort to me in knowing that he's going to be able to do the very same thing in my messy life. And this morning, as we come to the middle section of Acts chapter 8, we have kind of a unique text in front of us with some very unique people who are doing some very unique things, and yet I think what we're going to see again is that God works so uniquely with them, and he's continuing to move them forward, right, on and on to their next steps of faith, both as this sort of growing body of believers corporately, but we're going to see also just the way he deals with some of these unique individuals um, individually. So let's pray and just ask that the Lord would really bless Uh, and give us insight this morning. Father, we do thank you uh, for this time, Lord, that you've set set aside, and we thank you for this place that you have provided to us, Lord, where we can meet, Lord, and where we can uh, be ministered to by you, Lord, where we can minister to you through our worship and our our praise, Lord. Uh, We pray even now as we go to your word, Lord, that your teacher, uh, Lord, your spirit would be our teacher this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord. And we thank you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week we watched, right, we talked about the Lord continuing to keep things under control even in the midst of chaos. We saw that the the stoning of Stephen kind of triggered this new phase of persecution of the believers, led by a man named Saul, who of course we're later going to come to know in Acts chapter 9 as the great apostle Paul, as he'll have this head-on collision with the Lord Jesus there on the road to Damascus. But for now, he was acting kind of like this wild, wounded boar, right? Just madly persecuting these Christians, running them out of their homes, forcing them to scatter like some kind of hunted 
prey. And yet, from the perspective of heaven, we saw that they were more like seeds that were being sown all in the surrounding regions, including Samaria, just north of Judea, where we saw that there was this sort of a a mixed breed of these hated half-Jews. They were living there. They were visited by Philip, who was one of those dynamic deacons, just like Stephen had been. And Philip went up there, and he shared the good news of Jesus Christ with these poor people. And we saw that the results were nothing less than incredible. In verse 6 of chapter 8, it said that the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. So everyone, right, was happy, or so it would seem, except for one man who we're going to meet this morning, and this story of his growing faith, I think, is as puzzling as sometimes maybe our own stories of growing faith can be. So we're going to look at an unlikely convert beginning in verses 9 through 13. It says, But there was a man named called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And so we meet Simon the Sorcerer, right? Or Simon Magus, you may have heard him called. That last name sort of coming from the word magi, right? Which means magician, as we've seen the last couple weeks. Now, he was sort of a local celebrity there in Samaria, honored by the people. They said he didn't just have the power of God, but they thought that he was the great power of God. And it's interesting, that word there for astonished in verse 9 literally is astounded or confounded or bewitched. So Simon had these people under his spell, so to speak. They were amazed at the things that he did, and because of that, they believed the things that he said. Now, in the Bible, sorcery is very often associated with the occult or with magical practices or sometimes even with the taking of you know, mind or, or mood-altering drugs. Now, we're not told specifically what kind of sorceries Simon was performing, and yet we see that whatever it was, it was working. We also can be sure of one thing, that Satan was using Simon to keep people away from knowing the true and living God. Whatever supernatural power that Simon possessed came not from God, but from Satan. And you see that it was used to magnify Simon and not the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul warns about the working of Satan with power and of signs and of lying wonders. And it's important for us to know that indeed, Satan can empower individuals to do signs and to do wonders and to do these impressive miracles. And yet their purpose and what those signs produce is that it gets people to start to look at the signs instead of looking to the Lord. So whether it's crystals or pyramids or hypnosis or spells or magic or mediums or fortune-telling or astrology, any of these things that kind of smack of the occult 
all of these things are at their very least cleverly devised substitutes, but oftentimes are gateways which allow Satan to establish a foothold and to gain control over people's lives, over their allegiance, and over their dependence. Because what they do is these things provide people with a a false sense of comfort through thinking that they are part of some sort of secret knowledge, and yet it's not truth. So the sorcery of Simon here was keeping these people kind of blissfully ignorant, ignorant, if you were, maybe even compliant. They were there, they were under his spell. And it says in verse 11 that they heeded him because uh, he had astonished them all with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. What a great verse, right? Out of the darkness and into the light. Here Philip comes along and steps into this scene. He starts to share about Jesus Christ. He starts to give these people the good news of the kingdom. He brings the story of Jesus. He brings the message of the love of God in Jesus. And suddenly these poor people start to realize that there was hope. That there was actually joy which they had never known before. They started to realize, I think, that there was really a reason for living. And they responded to the preaching with believing faith. And then they demonstrated the reality of that newfound faith by being baptized. And I love the way that now that they had finally heard the truth, they turned immediately away from the lie. Because as we continue to say, there is inherent power in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's freedom in the truth. Jesus himself proclaimed what in John chapter 8? That you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And understand that all the false religious systems, any of the man-made thought systems, bring people into bondage. And they bring them into this atmosphere of darkness or duty or of striving or straining. And yet the truth of Jesus, when we start to understand his great love for us and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, that brings people out of the shadows of bondage and into the light of freedom and into a life based on grace and truth and mercy and love. I remember years ago, I was traveling on a teaching trip to India, and they took us on a tour of one of the local Hindu temples. And we witnessed, as we watched this desperate man laying on his face, crying out in anguish to one of the thousands of Hindu gods that were represented there in that shrine. And our interpreter there told us that this man was pleading for mercy, and he was crying out for forgiveness. He was there crying desperately out into the silence of this false religious system that had nothing to offer him. And I remember it was one of the most difficult things I have ever watched because we were prevented by armed guards from approaching him and prevented from being able to share the hope and the life-giving truth that would have provided peace to his soul and brought him out of that bondage. And that's what I imagine that these Samaritans were experiencing here. 
They finally had freedom and they were at peace and they were, they'd broken loose from that spell of Simon. And so powerful, in fact, was the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Look what it says in verse 13. It says that then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. So this is huge. Here, Philip's ministry is exploding. Not only were the people responding with one accord, not only were they all giving heed to the gospel message and finding truth and freedom in its truth and simplicity, but now we have even this powerful, prominent, satanically empowered sorcerer, Simon, who had heard the truth, seen the signs, and given over his life to the Lord. He was baptized as well, and it said he started following the ministry of Philip. And we can only imagine how his profession of faith must have rattled and rippled through whatever remaining followers he had. And what I love here is that what was happening here in Samaria is just like what was happening in those first days of the gospel back in Jerusalem. And yet, it was happening here not in the holy city, right? not amongst the pious religious Jews, but it was happening in a hated city amongst a hated people. Look what it says in verse 14. It says, Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans... Uh, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. It's like, what in the world is going on right up there in Samaria? So the Jerusalem church decides to send Peter and John up there kind of to check it out, right? They wanted some apostolic eyes on the situation. They probably wanted some verification that the Samaritans really were getting saved. These are these semi-Gentile, schismatic Samaritans. The apostles said, hey, we want to check this out. And so here come Peter and John. It says in verse 15, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So not only were all of the reports true, but now the Lord was going to use Peter and John as this Samaritan ministry moved to the next steps. Now, we mentioned that the up to this time things in Samaria had been moving along just as in Jerusalem at the beginning, and in the very same way, these Samaritan believers, though they had believed, right? They had been born again, It says they had not yet received that same outpouring of the Holy Spirit just as was experienced in Jerusalem at Pentecost. So they'd been baptized by the Spirit into the body of believers when they had believed. They'd been water baptized in the name of Jesus, it says, or in the authority or according to what Jesus commanded when he gave us the great commission right they had identified publicly with him in that new work that he was doing in their lives but there was still more there was still more power and there was more enabling and there was more equipping that was still available to them as the spirit hadn't yet come upon them now that's that third 
relationship with the Spirit, which we've seen and which we've talked about. And it's illustrated in the scriptures by those three different prepositions, right? The Spirit is with us before our conversion. He comes to live in us when we profess faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and we're born again. He's the one that regenerates us. But then he can come upon us as we see is happening here in verse 16. And that's that experience where he fills us to overflowing, right? Usually preparing us for service and for ministry and giving us power for victorious Christian living. So this event here that's happening, most simply, this is the Samaritan Pentecost, just like we saw happened in Jerusalem back in chapter 2. And that pattern fits perfectly when we understand it in the context of these three different ways that the Spirit can relate to us, those different ways that the Spirit moves and ministers in and through our lives. And yet, what I think is especially interesting and significant and a little bit puzzling is the fact that Peter and John were the ones that had to be there to be part of it. That Peter and John were the ones that the Lord would use to help to usher in that work of the Spirit in this way. Now, very often in the scriptures, we see that the empowering or that filling of the Spirit is received when people lay hands on another person and pray for that person. And yet it's not because of some super gifting or some special ability of that person who's laying hands on, right? It's just a point of connection. It's a point of contact. It's a point of the releasing of the faith of the person who's being prayed for. So then the question is, if Peter and John didn't have any special magical powers to impart the spirit, why not just have Philip do it? Right? Philip was the one who basically led the whole city to the knowledge of Jesus. Philip was the one who had baptized them. He was the one that had taught them, that shared the good news of the coming kingdom with them. So why didn't Philip just lay his hands on the Samaritans to receive the power of the Spirit? Well, God had a very specific reason. And most simply... It's because God wanted to unite these new Samaritan believers with the original Jerusalem church believers. And so he brought Peter and John up here to participate and to bear witness, witness with what he was doing with this new group of people. Remember that for the past 700 years, the temple at Jerusalem and the temple up in Samaria had been rival sanctuaries. Both groups claimed that they were the, uh, God's chosen people. There was this intense rivalry between them. And so the Lord was putting an end to all of that. And he was bringing reconciliation and he was bringing restoration amongst these people. And he was preventing the possibility of there being these two separate churches. Right, of perpetuating that division and that conflict that had existed for centuries. He was connecting the Jewish and the Samaritan Christians. He wasn't starting a separate movement there in Samaria. He wasn't trying to start a new sort of a distinct denomination of believers. And so I believe that involving Peter and John in this supernatural connection, it was just as much for their benefit as it was for the blessing of the Samaritans. Remember, 
Jesus had given Peter and the other apostles what? He gave them the keys to the kingdom of heaven, right? Remember Matthew chapter 16 there at Caesarea Philippi at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration? He said, here are the keys to the kingdom, which effectively meant that Peter and the other apostles would have the privilege of opening up the door of faith to others. And so we've seen that Peter, through his preaching, had opened the door publicly to the Jews back at Pentecost. And now here he is opening the door to the Samaritans. When we get to chapter 10, we're going to see that he's going to open the door of faith officially to the Gentiles there in the house of Cornelius. And so we can certainly see that God is serious about the unity of the body of believers. You remember back in John chapter 17 and what is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer, right? A prayer he prays for us before he goes to the cross. And Jesus prayed this. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. And here, I believe God is answering that prayer by ensuring that the apostles at Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, could be part of this Samaritan Pentecost. And all the sort of the miraculous manifestations of the coming of the Spirit that, you know, we can only assume at least some of those things that had happened at, the, at Pentecost in Jerusalem happened again here in Samaria. Because look what it says next. It says that when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not told what Simon saw. We're not told what specific manifestation of the Holy Spirit was present here when he fell there on the Samaritans. But whatever it was, whether it was tongues or prophecy or whatever, whatever it was, it impressed Simon. And he wanted to be able to do the same thing. Now surely, Simon had no deep sense of the incredible spiritual implications of what was actually going on. But Simon, I think, rather just saw this as another supernatural power which would potentially put him back at the top of his game. So tragically, just as was the practice, what still is the practice of magicians today, he offered money to the two apostles to try to buy that power from them. Now, because of this, because here Simon stumbles into this sin, because of this, many have wondered and they've asked the question of whether or not Simon was actually saved. And they claim that this reveals his unregenerate heart. They say that though he made a profession of faith in Christ, though he was even baptized, though he continued with Philip, that he only was following because he was fascinated with the miracles, but he, that he was never actually born again. And there are many students of the scripture whom I really respect that would take this position. And there is certainly a very strong warning in this scenario. Because it is very possible to believe and yet not to be born again. 
In James chapter 2, he says, you believe that there is one God and you do well. But he says, even the demons believe and tremble. So the demons believe and yet they're not saved. And I'm sure you've heard it said that it's very possible to miss heaven by 18 inches, right? You can believe in your head intellectually. You can even affirm the theology mentally. But if the faith isn't in your heart, then you are no better off than the demons who are in hell. And I can tell you, there is not one demon who doubts the reality of hell. And this is why, you know, the letter of James is so misunderstood, but James is very clear to point out this kind of fallacy of, a, of an intellectual-only type of faith. But the whole point of James's letter is to say, you know, your heart has to be touched. Your faith has to affect the way that you live because without works, your faith is dead. So salvation absolutely is by faith. It's not faith and works. It's not faith in works. It's what? It's faith that works. And certainly Simon's works here in asking to buy the ability to convey the spirit, Simon's works would indicate that he is not in a good place. And that at the very least, he greatly misunderstood what he was actually asking for. And yet, does that mean that he wasn't saved? And the truth is, Luke doesn't specifically tell us one way or another, so it's pretty difficult to be too dogmatic about it. Because to Philip, Simon certainly appeared to be born again. Verse 13, it says that he believed in the preaching of Philip. It's the very same word for believe that the other Samaritans had done. It's the very same word for believe that's used in John 3.16 when Jesus said that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We also see that Philip received Simon as a follower, that he baptized him. It says that Simon continued on with Philip. And we know that he continued on attending meetings and being fellowship with the other believers because he was here that day in the meeting when the Spirit came. And all of these things are the things that we look for as evidences of a real faith. And so the jury is still out. Was Simon just a professor or was he a possessor, right? Did he believe in his head but not in his heart? Well, I can certainly say this, okay? After reading through Acts a number of different times and after having studied through this passage for hours and hours this week, I can say with the utmost confidence and beyond a shadow of any doubt, I can say that I have no idea. And yet God does. But I will say this too. I personally hope that we'll see Simon one day in heaven. And again, there are many other students of the scripture whom I respect who also would take this position, I would like to believe that at this point, Simon was a born-again believer who was just getting to his feet in his faith. And that like every one of us in this room, he brought with him into his new life some of those same sins and some of those same struggles from his old life. Now, 
positionally, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. So positionally, in terms of our standing, we are made new and the slate is wiped clean. Amen? But practically, right, do we not find that quite often those things which we struggled with before coming to faith in Christ are very often the very same things that we continue to struggle with even after we confess him as Lord? especially when we're taking those very first steps of faith. And I think that there's a clue for us back in verse 9. When Luke first introduced us to Simon, it says that he practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, what? Claiming that he was someone great. So Simon was a man who suffered greatly from the sin of pride. He claimed to be someone great. He wanted, he needed that adoration and that acclamation of the people. And so even here, after his conversion, he was still a man who struggled with the sin of pride. And again, he senses the ability you know, to, to impart the power of the Holy Spirit to others. That would have given him back that sort of spiritual authority that he had once enjoyed. And um, G. Campbell Morgan said that the sin was a desire to possess spiritual power for personal ends. And it's a sin, of course, that we still even see today. And in fact, it's from this story and from Simon's tragic sin here that the term simony is a word that means the buying or the selling of church offices or privileges. Because it's done in the very same spirit that Simon was doing it here. Now, I don't believe that there's anyone here who's trying to buy their way into some position of prominence in this ministry here. And yet, there's still an aspect of Simon's sin that I think we all need to be very careful to avoid. And that's this. Simon thought that the Holy Spirit was just a power that could be bought or sold. He wanted to control the working of the Spirit. He saw the Holy Spirit as a power he could use the way that he wanted and not as a person who actually had ruling over his life. The Bible is very clear that the Holy Spirit is not a force, but he's a person. And in fact, he's the third person, we say, of the Godhead. And as a person, the Holy Spirit acts as he wills, not the way we command him to act. We mentioned that, you know, we, to see him as a, as a force, if you just see him as a force to do the things that you want him to do, then you're going to miss out on everything that he wants to do in your life. And the moment we think we, we understand the way that he's going to work, what does he do? He does something completely different. We read through the experience of, of the early church with the Spirit, and we see that sometimes he comes both into and upon people right when they believe, as we're going to see later in Acts chapter 10. Other times, it happens as two distinct events, like in this chapter here and back in Pentecost in chapter 2. Four out of five times that he comes upon people, we see that it's connected with the gift of tongues, and yet here... 
we noticed that there's no mention of tongues specifically, when there very easily could have been a mention if there had been tongues. And I think that the point is that the Spirit has left himself room to operate different ways at different times as he deals with different people, and that he always does it in agreement with the examples that we see in the scriptures. And I have to say, I look around within the church sometimes, and I shudder as I see and hear the way that I, I'm sure sometimes sincere Christians are commanding the Spirit to do this, or commanding the Spirit to do that as though he were some sort of a magic spell or, or a genie who was there at our beck and call. The fact is, we don't control him, he controls us. And so the question isn't how much of the Spirit do we have, but how much of us does the Spirit have? And we see when Paul will later exhort the believers to, he says, walk in the Spirit in Galatians 5. He says, be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. And the implication there, again, is that the Spirit would have more control of us, that we would be more yielded to him, and that we would open ourselves to that work that he wants to do to conform us more and more each day into the image of Christ. And the problem is that what we want is no different than what Simon wanted, and that's to be in command. We want to be in the spotlight. We want to be in control, and we want to have others see that in us. Now, you can certainly believe whatever you want to about Simon. And yet, to me, rather than just write him off as a counterfeit Christian or even as a tear sown by the enemy amongst the wheat, I would simply see him as a new believer with some growing to do and as a brother who was desperately in need of some teaching and some discipleship and maybe even starting off with a harsh word of admonition. And that's just what we're going to see he's about to get from the Apostle Peter. He gets a strong rebuke starting in verse 20. It says that Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Wow. How do you like it if somebody talked to you that way on a Sunday morning? Hey, brother, out in the foyer, right? Peter doesn't pull any punches, right? He doesn't hide his outrage at this suggestion that Simon could buy what is actually a gift of God. And Peter's words may sound a little bit over the top, right? A little bit harsh. And yet the reason, again, is that Simon failed to understand the grace of God. He failed to understand this great gift and the, the free nature of salvation and of all the blessings that God gives us. And this is at the very core of the gospel, isn't it? We can't buy, we can't earn God's favor because it's been freely given to us. And yet, how quickly so many people today forget this. We've all heard the stories of people there on their deathbeds calling in preachers, maybe calling in the priest, and offering to turn over 
properties or, or forfeit their whole fortunes if their sins could just be forgiven then and there and they could be assured a place in heaven. And yet, in the nicest way that I can say it, that is a satanically inspired delusion. It doesn't work that way. Paul said to the Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the what? The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And at this, Peter's point, I think, is that the Holy Spirit coming in to indwell and to fill us as believers is as truly a gift of God as was the sacrifice on the cross for the redemption of us as sinners. And all these gifts of God are always received from him by faith. It says in Isaiah 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. We can't purchase the gifts of God with our money. And yet we all understand, of course it's true, that what we receive from God should reflect what we do with our money. Right? We give to God not to get from God, but we give to God because he's already given to us. So certainly Simon, he, what he asked shows definitely how little he had entered into the truth of the gospel. But again, I don't necessarily see that it shows that he hadn't already believed on the gospel. He was strongly in error. He needed a strong rebuke. In fact, J.B. Phillips translates the phrase, your money perish with you. He translates it like this, that Peter said, to hell with you and your money. Right? Quite simply, what you are asking is of the devil and you are headed in the wrong direction here. And I have to say, I appreciate that Peter was willing to come along Simon and to tell him the truth in love, though I'm very sure it was hard for both Simon and everybody else there in the meeting to hear it. And yet I believe that Peter meant it for Simon's good, and I think that maybe Peter even saw a little glimmer in Simon of his own previous failures. Because isn't it interesting, when Peter says you have neither part nor portion in this matter, there in verse 21, he's using essentially the very same words that Jesus used with him when Peter had objected to allowing Jesus to wash his feet. Remember in the upper room, John 13, Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now those were similarly strong words from Jesus and still, Peter was not an unbeliever at the time. He was a believer that was out of the will of God. So I think for Peter, you know, our, our past failures should produce grace in our hearts towards those we see who are struggling with the very same things. And Peter's solution here for Simon was to repent. And literally, of course, that word just means to change your mind. Right? Change your attitude. And effectively, Peter was saying, look, you can't go on like this, Simon. You can't go on poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. He says, change your attitude and change your heart. Now, what was it that Peter saw? 
What was this sin of bitterness that was poisoning and that was binding Simon? Well, it was still the sin of pride. It was Simon's bitterness over the success of Philip. It was Simon's bitterness over the fact that he saw his once faithful followers were now faithfully following Philip and were responding fantastically to his ministry. And I am so glad that there are none of us here in this room that would possibly ever be guilty of such an unspeakably heinous sin as being jealous over somebody else's success. Maybe in one of those other churches, but certainly not here. Amen? You guys know I'm kidding, right? All right. So as bad as Simon's sin was, right, as strongly as he was rebuked by Peter, the fact was he could still repent. Right? Peter says the door of repentance and restoration, the door of getting your heart right with God is still open if you would only take it. And I think to his credit, look what it says in verse 24. It says that then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now again, some suggest that Simon's response here was kind of a spiritual cop-out. Because instead of humbling himself before God, he asked Peter to pray that he would be spared these consequences. Now this seems to me, though, to be more like a cry for help. Because I think Simon was in such a twisted up place, he knew that he was wrong. Simon knew that the path that Peter was proposing was right, but he needed Peter's help to get there. And as I was studying, the spirit brought to mind, you know, it's like that the father in Mark chapter 9, remember, he came to Jesus and he asked for healing for his son who was suffering terribly. And remember, Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He believed, but he needed help to believe more. So maybe you're in a similar situation personally this morning. Maybe you're in a situation where you are struggling with sin or you're bound by bitterness or you're entangled in some kind of iniquity or you're just confused in your own thoughts or in your own heart and you would want to ask a brother or you would want to reach out to a sister and simply say, you know, pray for me. Pray for me that I can turn things around. And if that's you this morning, remember that no matter how bad things may seem, no matter how bad things might actually be, no matter how you know, poisoned by bitterness or bound by iniquity you are, the Lord is ready to forgive you and he's ready to pick you up and to dust you off and to get you back on track. Now, unfortunately, the scriptures don't tell us what became of Simon. We don't know if he ever followed through on that conviction of heart that he seems to be exhibiting here. And I will say this, unfortunately, church tradition is pretty clouded and pretty conflicted when it comes to Simon. There are some who say that he eventually did go off the deep end and that he became a dangerous false teacher and he was erring in his Christian theology. And then there are others who claim that he was vilified, if you will, in the pages of human history. 
And yet what's interesting is I think that with all of the teachers that we see Paul will call out by name in his epistles, Simon isn't one of them. And so I think we should just leave it to the scriptures and leave it to the Lord. It is certainly possible at this point that he did repent and that he did get his heart right with God. And the scriptures don't tell us any differently. Right? The door of repentance was open to him. And aren't we glad that the very same grace that saves unbelievers freely will also forgive believers abundantly. It says in verse 25 that when they testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Who are we talking about there? Peter and John. Peter and John, here we're leaving this puzzling story of Simon and we finish with this gospel spreading all throughout Samaria through the ministry of Peter and John as they returned back to Jerusalem. And we have to imagine that they were in just as much wonder themselves over what the Lord had just unexpectedly done, but here they missed out on no opportunity to be part of of even this new thing. Even this new puzzling thing that they didn't really understand, they wanted to be part of it. And I think as we consider this text, if we just take one thing away this morning, it's that the Lord is working and that sometimes he will work in ways that are puzzling to us. And sometimes he will work through people who are puzzling to us. Now, we don't know what became of Simon in the end, but we also don't know what the Lord may have done through Simon during his time with him. And just like we see, I think, in Peter and John, it's so important that we always be open to whatever the new thing is that the Lord is doing in our lives. Holding fast to good doctrine, holding fast to our theology, holding fast to the things we see in the scriptures, but open and ready to respond in grace, by faith, to receive and to really be part of everything that the Lord has for us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for, um, Lord, those examples in it, Lord, that we don't uh, even understand, Lord, that we truly will perhaps only understand when we get to heaven, Lord, and Father, we pray that in the meantime, that your spirit would use the examples of these people, Lord, in the way that you worked in and through their lives, Lord. Use them to encourage us, Lord, as uh, we're puzzled sometimes not only by the behavior of others, Lord, but puzzled oftentimes by our own behavior. And so um, pray, Lord, that you would uh, continue to pour out your grace upon us, Lord. Pray that we'd be gracious with ourselves, Lord, that we'd be gracious as well with one another. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's, uh, let's worship. Amen. Amen.